Colossians 2 is where we turn again this morning for God's word to us. It's God's word that he's spoken to us, written down for us. He's given us this great opportunity to celebrate him, celebrate his kindness. If God had not revealed himself to us, we would be in the dark. We need God's revelation, and it is written down for us here. I'm going to read beginning at verse 1 through verse 9, I think I have on the screen or maybe verse 10, I forget how far I went, but read this passage, but we're going to focus specifically on verse 8. Paul says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea and for all who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. For even though I'm absent in body, nevertheless I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. How many times we've seen in this brief section, even, but also throughout this letter to the Colossians, how much wisdom is discussed. Paul speaks about his um, the wisdom that is available only through Christ. He is the if you want, the headwaters or the fountainhead of all wisdom and knowledge. He is the one in whom, well, if we if we want wisdom, we want to understand what is going on in this world, we need to look to Christ himself. He is the one that we approach, we ask God for wisdom, we want to recognize, whoa, we need a Savior every day, and he is the one that is able to do it. He is the one who is not able to save us, not only able to save us from sin, but he is the one who's able to give us instruction in righteousness. In fact, his his teaching, his training, his righteousness is the which we need. We are established in our faith, not just our, our trust in him, but the content of what we believe. We're attached to him. We believe him and his person and his work. We were instructed in this way, and we then result or overflow in gratitude toward him. But there is this issue that was going on in the Colossian church. It goes on today. And it's gone on all the time. It's gone on since the Garden of Eden when Satan deceived, didn't deceive Eve. Well, excuse me. Yes, he deceived. First Timothy 2 says that he, the woman being quite deceived, fell in transgression. Adam just outright disobeyed. But the woman was uh, convinced that truth is a lie, that God's word you can't really trust. And instead, hey, just trust your gut. Follow your feelings. When she saw that the the fruit was good for all these other things. Then she took it and ate and gave it to her husband also who was with her, and he ate. And thus sin entered the world and death through sin. Deception is powerful. It's deathly. And Paul says, you have been firmly rooted, you know, established in that, grounded in that, and then you've had this, this uh, uh, superstructure of faith built upon him, and then we need to work that out or to express that confidence that we have in Christ through our lives, resulting in gratitude. But he says, look, you be careful. You be so careful in what you allow into your mind, what you listen to, what you are, uh, whom you are listening, to whom you're listening, because this lie, these lies and trickery and deceit are all over the place, from the garden 
until the final garden. Can you imagine that Satan even back after that thousand year captivity or imprisonment in the abyss and and according to Revelation 20, he goes out and he deceives whole nations and says, we got Jesus right where we want him to be and fights a battle, tries to fight a battle against Jesus and he is... He's destroyed. The nations are destroyed. He is cast into hell. Satan is deceptive. He doesn't give up. He's unrelenting. He is after everyone. He wants to destroy. Jesus says he has come to to, um, steal and kill and destroy. That's his whole agenda. And he does it so much through truth, through ideas. That's why the battle we face is not, we don't need to take up arms against our enemies. We need to take up the battlement, these spiritual elements that we have to wage war against. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, they're not natural, they are spiritual. And the ideas we need to confront uh, are all over the place, all over the board, things that we wouldn't think would be an issue are an issue. It's just the world does not relent. It it continues to push and push its anti-God, anti-supernatural agenda. And Paul says here, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and into deception. This is a problem. This is a problem. First, he says, you need to beware. Watch what's going on. Uh, take care of what you are allowing, your, or how you're allowing yourself to be influenced. These are significant things. See to it. This is a constant vigilance that we need to have. It's not just a once and done kind of thing. Um, you know, like getting married, that's a once and done. Well, that's not a once and done. You get married and you continually uh, uh, commit yourself and lay down your life for your spouse. But having this idea of being aware, being uh, diligent to guard against any kind of error that may come in, this is deceptive error. Now, the thing about deception is that it's not always obvious that it's error. It can be cloaked in reasonableness, it seems prudent that this is the way you ought to do, or it could take even quoting God's word, like, I don't know, maybe like Satan did back in the beginning, and misquoting it, misrepresenting it, casting aspersions or doubt upon it. Did God really say all these things? Deception sounds reasonable. That's why Paul said earlier, don't be hoodwinked by persuasive argument. That we should, um, back in verse 4, he said, don't let anyone delude you with Things that sound good, sounds reasonable, sounds, yeah, we, oh yeah, old-fashioned, this whole Bible thing is so old-fashioned and good grief. It's written thousands of years ago, cannot really be relevant for today. Yes, it can be, and it is, and it's the only thing, really, that is absolutely and authoritatively relevant. It is sufficient uh, revelation for us. Watch out for persuasive argument. Watch out for this philosophy and empty deception as we will look through it. But it says, watch out for anyone. Now, Paul, when he, I mean, he, he's been around the block several times. When he's writing Colossians, he's been in the faith for, what, 30 years? Well, maybe 25 years. And not just in the faith, he has been an apostle. He has been uh, personally developed, taught, and instructed by the Lord himself. And he had a specific, a particular, and magnificent role to play in establishing the church. But he says, he says here, watch out lest anyone. And the thing with Paul is he had been around so many different churches and situations that he knew. He could name names. In other places he does. You know, Alexander the Coppersmith. He puts names or Janus and Jambres. He talked about the guys, the priests that opposed Moses. These other folks are acting like that. I can give names. Um, in this case, he says anyone. Watch out for anyone. Now, he could have named names here in Colossae, even though he didn't have a personal 
uh, he personally present in that city. He knew what was going on. And yet he says, it's not even worth naming who these people are. I don't want to give even honor to, to name them in scripture, which now we're reading 2,000 years later. We don't need to read about those false teachers. Just watch out for anyone who is trying to deceive you, who is trying to take you as a kidnapped victim right into their clutches, into their, into their uh, boasting uh, satchel kind of a thing. Watch out for any person, anything, any system of thought that would lead you away from Christ. So this indefinite is not because Paul doesn't know who they are. He knows who they are. He knows exactly who they are. And even how Paul, as we've mentioned before, how he interacts with the false teaching in Colossae, he doesn't say this, that, and the other thing, but he does address, he doesn't specifically name what is this heresy that they're doing, that the teaching in Colossae, but it does say has something to do with Christ because Paul has spent so much time upon the person and work of Christ. has to do with legalism. We'll see that in, later in, in chapter 2. has to do with going along with legalism, asceticism, which is to say, if I just restrict my body and, you know, don't touch that and don't taste that and don't drink, do, do any of that stuff, then I'll be holy and righteous. And Paul says that's not going to accomplish anything. It seems like it's really prudent and sensible, but it has no value against fleshly indulgence. You need to go deeper than that. You can't just restrict yourself into righteousness. It also has to do with mysticism, the worship of angels, a lot of things going on in the Colossian church, which are not so dissimilar to what's going on here in the 21st century. Watch out. Be careful. Be on your guard against anyone who would lead you astray through persuasive stuff. Notice it says here, takes you captive. This idea is it's almost a, a, a word that Paul coined or put together. It's not really used anywhere else in Scripture. There's some other related words that have to do with it. Uh, for example, um, when Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, he says, I beat my body and make it my slave. The idea of making slave, making some something or some person a slave, is kind of this idea. It's a little bit different because there he's talking about a slavery, which is a master-servant kind of relationship. When he's talking about this idea of taking captive, it's not for the purpose of slavery so much, it is for the purpose of possession. They want you. These false teachers want you. They want you. Like Galatians 6, Paul says, uh, Galatians 6 and verse 13, Paul says, those who are circumcised, this has to do going back to legalism, this issue of if, you know, God will only accept us if we keep all the law of Moses and so forth. Those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves. But, and here's the thing, they desire to have you circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh boast in your flesh. Hey, I've, I've got a follower. They believe me. They bought my book or they went to my seminar or whatever. And Paul says, may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of my Lord Jesus Christ through whom or through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. This boasting is what these false teachers want. They want followers after them. Now, it's not just for the numbers, you know, Twitter followers or, you know, uh, email list or have all these hundreds of thousands of people. But there's another attending reality of that is if they're following after me, then they'll send their money to me, right? They're, they're, that's why elders are not to be fond of sordid gain or, you know, going after filthy lucre, that kind of stuff, because students like to support their teachers. They like to pay for their different um, necessities and so forth. And these false teachers are saying, hey, we need more of these converts so that they'll give us more stuff and give us more honor and praise and accolades and call us rabbi in the, in the squares. And, and Jesus says, don't do that. Don't go after that. You, you're seeking after the praise of men. Well, 
you can get the praise of men, but you forfeit the praise of your Father in heaven, forfeit the praise of God. Which would you rather have? But these false teachers are after it. Do you remember back when Paul spoke to the elders of the Ephesian church in Acts 20? He said, I know that after my departure, savage wolves, I mean, those, they're not nice. They tear things apart. Savage wolves will come among, among you. Those from outside coming in and infiltrating the church and speaking it's false, false doctrine. But also, some of you men that I've been with for three years, Paul would say to these Ephesian elders, some of you will arise speaking perverse things in order to draw away disciples after them. This is the idea. Watch out lest anyone take you captive. Don't follow after somebody who's leading you away from Christ. He is the shepherd. He is the standard. He is the one that is the whole organizing reality of our doctrine, of our situation. It's a silly thing, perhaps, but the reason we're called Christians instead of Paulians or Petrinians or Lucans, since Luke, Dr. Luke wrote almost a third or quarter of the scriptures, New Testament anyway, we're not called after Luke or Apollos. Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians, uh, some people say I'm of Apollos or Peter or Paul, I'm of Christ. You need to be of Christ. Give your attention to him. Yes, we like teachers. We appreciate Jeremiah the prophet. We appreciate all these different things, but they give glory to Christ. If you have any false teacher, any teacher who claims to be presenting you the way of Christ, but they're not talking about his word, they're not honoring, celebrating, sanctifying, raising up Christ as our only hope, be careful. Beware, lest anyone take you captive through this stuff. There's a related idea, making a slave, making a captive, making a prisoner. We think, oh, you know, I, I need to be liberated in my theology. Guess what liberation theology is going to get you? Enslavement, prisoner. You're going to be enslaved to ideas that have no place in Scripture, no place, no origin in Scripture. It is a violent uh, offense against God's word. We need to make sure that we're not taken captive by anything except Christ. Now, you'll see as we go through this that we want to be we want to be taken by Jesus Christ himself. We want to be in his uh, uh, satchel or his his possession. And in fact, we are. Uh, various scripture says that we're his his uh, beloved possession. We are his uh, beloved people. We are uh, his brothers. We're part of his family. He says it's not you know father and mother and sister. The ones who are my father or my my mother and sisters and brother are those who obey my father's command. It's not other people. We can have that relationship with Christ. He wants he wants us. Can you imagine why would God want a bunch of sinners like us? Well. Because he, he's able to sanctify us. He's able to change us from the inside out. When we are captive through Christ or captured by Christ, that's the best thing that ever could happen. Because you're either going to be in the clutches and arms of Satan, which is anti-God, motivated all against what God is after, or you can be in the kingdom of his beloved son, like we saw back in Colossians 1. We are transferred out of that domain of darkness, brought into the kingdom of the son of his love, and that is where we want to be. Lest you think, well, I don't think it's 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 nice to think of myself as a captive. Well, you are a captive. So, but you're captured by what? Captured by the world or by Christ? The blessed thing is, this is Ephesians four and verse eight, but it's quote Psalm sixty-eight, verse eighteen. It says to each one of us, this is verse seven of Ephesians four. To each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, this is Christ ascending on high. He led captive a host of captives and gave gifts to men. 
Another translation say, he led captivity captive. What's he talking about? Those who were captives of the world, of Satan, of death, of condemnation, he led that, those captured people, as new captives, now captives of Christ. Wow, that's what we want to be. We want to be so devoted to him where we are centered on him for truth, for uh, our cognition, our awareness of reality, and, and our marching orders. How ought we to live our lives? Christ is the one who is able to transfer us out of that domain of darkness and bring us right into that new kingdom. There's a war, though, to play, to wage here. But make sure, be careful, lest anyone take you captive, deceive you through persuasive argument. Here he talks about philosophy and empty deception. Philosophy and empty deception. Now, again, I mentioned, Paul has mentioned, talked about wisdom several times already in this brief letter and in uh, Colossians, in fact, one, two, three, four, five, six different times, he talks about wisdom central, cent centered in Christ himself. He is the, uh, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, verse three of chapter two. Uh, we present Christ, uh, and we present him to every man teaching and admonishing every man with all wisdom, uh, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. He mentioned it back earlier in chapter one, verse nine. Uh, that he may, you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And then again, two other, three other places. Verse 23, the appearance of wisdom of chapter 2, the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and abasement of self-abasement and severe treatment of the body. But that has no value. That's not going to get you anywhere. And then verse 16, that we should teach and admonish uh, through songs with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And then finally in verse 5 of chapter 4, conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders. What's this about philosophy? Well, the word wisdom in Greek is sophia, and philosophy is the love of wisdom. Paul has went out of his way to use wisdom and to say, you need wisdom. It's only in Christ himself. Make sure that you do not be captured, you're taken away captive through anything apart from Christ himself. Philosophy is not an evil idea. I mean, the love of wisdom, who who shouldn't love wisdom? Uh, in fact, so many Proverbs say if, you know, the beginning of wisdom is get wisdom. And in all you're getting, get understanding as well. There's this idea we need wisdom. And James chapter 1 says, if any of you lacks wisdom, well, you're out of luck. Sorry. No, that's not what it says. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. And he gives it to those. What is the beginning of wisdom? It's to know that you need it to get wisdom. But wait a minute. What about Proverbs 9 and verse 10? The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord, the fear of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom. Not just any God or the God of the universe or, or a creator God, but Yahweh, the one who's revealed himself in Scripture. The fear of him is the beginning, the foundation of wisdom. The knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. You want wisdom, you want knowledge, you want understanding, you come to the Lord himself, you come to Christ in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Philosophy, the love of wisdom or the uh, uh, devotion to wisdom is something that certainly Solomon celebrated back in uh, Proverbs, but he even valued it before that, before he wrote all those Proverbs. Where did he get the wisdom from? You remember the whole interaction that God the Father had with Solomon when he became king and, and so forth. And God said to Solomon, I'll give you whatever you ask for. And Solomon asked for wisdom to rule God's people rightly. 
And God gave him wisdom such as never happened again other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He had such wisdom and knowledge, wrote down the Proverbs, wrote down, in fact, our next reading in the Old Testament. We've just finished uh, the Psalms, Psalm 150, and we're going to read Ecclesiastes or, uh, well, Solomon's word. Solomon's name isn't in there, but it's pretty well established that he wrote that as his record, as his memoir of his Testing of wisdom, testing of knowledge. You know, I tried this, I tried a little bit of that, I thought this, I, you know, all that. I come back to God. Without God, there's nothing. There's vanity. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Under the sun. In all of our exploration, our thinking, our, our cogitating about reality, it's all vanity unless it is held in relation to God. Unless we see God, the God of Scripture, not just any God, but the God of Scripture, specifically God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, if he is not not just in our understanding, our approach, our system of, of, of thought, then we're off base. We, we need Christ central to it. Now, uh, even a stopped clock, I look at our clock that has so many problems of keeping time, even a stopped clock is right at least twice a day, unless it's a digital clock, in which case, you know, just flashes at you. But uh, even a stop clock. So yes, there are people who have been right. They've made observations that are true. But you know the thing about philosophy and, and one of the, the it's not necessarily more modern, but one of the expressions of that is uh, psychology. Psychology is the study of the soul, which you'd think that the study of the soul, I mean, that's what psychology means. The scripture has a little bit to say about the soul or talks about the heart talks about the spirit of man, the inner man. The scripture talks a whole lot about that. Psychology as a system, which is, is so diverse, has so many different voices speaking this, that, and the other thing, uh, is helpful to some degree in observation to make uh, uh, statements about you know, this person is doing this, these are, these are the symptoms, or these are the uh, conditions in which this is true or whichever. But when it comes to explaining or uh, giving a, a a procedure to alleviate the problem. Psychology, secular psychology, you know, a godless psychology, it really misses the mark because it doesn't identify sin. I mean, that's kind of important. You want to study the soul, you better understand sin. Oh, there's no sin. It's all a chemical thing or the way that you were raised or uh, situations, experiences you've, you've been in or, or the ideas that you have. Is there any kind of personal? No, 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 no. I mean, you, different schools, of course, would have different, different ideas. But unless we start with the scripture, it, it would be like if we were to go on a journey. Some people are traveling across country here pretty soon. It'd be like, I'm ready to go on a journey, but you don't leave your house. I'm on my journey. You're still in your house. You need to, I mean, it's not even going the wrong direction. It is you haven't made any progress. If you do not acknowledge the authority, the sufficiency of the word of God as a foundation for anything in your life, what you think, what you speak, what you believe in your soul, then you're off base. You're not going to make any progress. There have been many folks who've been going back to philosophy, philosophers, even from around the time of the Babylonian exile, like 500, 586 was the time of the final uh, destruction of the temple and so forth. Time of Jeremiah, there was a, a philosopher up in Greece the, uh, named Thales, uh, Thales of Miletus, and he, it's actually not Greece, it's in Asia Minor, but um, anyway, he was uh, identified as the first philosopher, or the first one who said, I love wisdom. Now, this is hundreds of years after Solomon, of course, but he was one who was celebrated as that. But his 
approach or his uh, idea about philosophy was more natural. He was an observer of nature, and he made the statement that all things come from water and will return to water. That really didn't have metaphysical ideas. He wasn't talking about truth or, or morality and those kind of things. He was talking about where did this stuff come from and what's going to happen in the future. It was more of a natural philosophy, and that goes on throughout the ages. It wasn't so much a, a, a theory or ideas about things. It was ideas about non-tangible things. They were so much concerned about science. How does this stuff work and how does how – does, firework and how you know all these different pursuits that they had we have uh, other folks pythagoras you know the pythagorean theorem is 100 years later than thales but he was a philosopher he loved wisdom he loved uh, considering cons- um, uh, these ideas and and uh, but again more in a natural kind of thing or in the in the case of mathematics the relationship of the sides of a hypotenuse triangle in any event Truth is God's truth, but truth is centered in Christ Jesus himself. He is the one who is needs to be central in it. He is the one to whom we want to uh, give full and first place uh, in our thinking and our understanding. Because there's the thing, going back to the psychology thing, there's both an observation phase of presenting, formulating an idea, but then the observation needs to be interpreted well, this is so because of so-and-so. Well, wait a minute. Is your interpretation correct? The way you're understanding it, is, is that correct? Is that valid based on the data? Because data can be used any which way, depending on your presuppositions, your worldview. This philosophy Paul is talking about here is not Christ-centered. It is not godly. It's not based on revelation. It's based on reason. Well, guess what? Talking about that psychology thing, uh, that we need, we're studying the soul, but maybe sin needs to be present in that. One of the dangers of of a philosophical system that is contrary to uh, Christ Himself is that it is based on human reason rather than revelation, and that is a problem because sin affects our reason. Scripture talks about the darkness of our minds. It talks about being uh, Romans eight says we are at war against God. So it's not just a neutral thing. I'm going to be an objective. No, you, you can't be objective. Either you're for God or against him. Either you give him place in your philosophy, your theology, your worldview, or you don't. And guess what? If you don't, then you're wrong. And you will be so off base by the time that you end your life, you will be chasing after folly. You have wasted your life in this empty deception. Other failures of uh, philosophy are that we don't, we don't even know what we don't know. There are things, I mean, we, we can read folks like uh, Thales back from the 6th century BC and his, his statement, everything was from water and to water. Well, we might have other ideas or the ideas of, you know, or the whole, everything we see is, you know, fire, water and these other things. Well, there might be other things. And are you taking into consideration God, who's overall a supernatural out of this creation uh, entity? Thales would say, no, there's no, there's no God. I I, pres- I prefer to find a, a a natural explanation for things. Well, you're finding a natural explanation for the creation of the world? That is a supernatural event. How can you explain anything apart from God's word? So Paul says, watch out for those who would take you captive through persuasive argument, through this philosophy. It sounds good. It sounds so reasonable. It sounds so uh, helpful and encouraging to us. But it's an empty illusion. It is uh, as... 
Other folks have said, all, all sound and fury, but signifies nothing. Or as Shakespeare, his much ado, but nothing. You ever read that story? It is much ado, but nothing. Just skip the whole thing. It's all about a misunderstanding and blowing up. Horrible stuff, but that's what this is. This philosophy, oh, there's a scandal in Scripture. Oh, do you know these discrepancies? Do you know that, that this is left out? Or you, all these uh, bringing into question, calling into question God's word. That's what false teachers specialize in. It's deceptive. It is empty. has no reality. It is not just bad. It is evil. It is empty. It is hollow. We can see this other word. Other, this word, uh, empty deception, is used in relation to the man that was sent by the master uh, to go and get some of the fruit of his vineyard, and the, the stewards of the vineyard took him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Nothing in his hand. Uh, there's there's nothing there. But it seems so good. You know, got all the billboards, got all the, the pamphlets, got all the whatever. There's nothing there. This is a big zero. It is untrue, and it's deceptive. It lead, It's not just claiming to be true. It leads away from the true truth. It is... Uh, not what it appears to be. It is without results. How can this this false the philosophy, how can this empty deception have any positive results? If it's based on a lie, it continues on a lie, there's nothing that's going to be granted to it. It is vain. Kind of like what Solomon said. Kohelet, the preacher, he said, all is vanity, vanity of vanities, emptiness of emptiness, fleeting, uh, transitory. There's nothing there. It's like a vapor. It's gone. We want to recognize that this false teaching is so um, empty and it is even without purpose. There's no purpose in it except to lead us away from Christ himself. He is the one that we have to do. This is a deception. It is deceitful. It is causing a, it's a misleading away from God's truth. It is erroneous. It is um, a trickery. Uh, it, it claims to be right, right, reasonable, true, claims to be based on experience. I mean, you read Job, and it gets kind of hard reading Job. You think, why are these guys arguing this way? They're arguing based on experience or tradition or personal, you know, I feel this is the way it ought to be. It's not Job. Now, Job has his own issues, and God confronts those, but he's, God says about those other counselors, you have not spoken about me rightly. You can't just speak based on your experience, your reason, or your own personal uh, feelings. Your, your, What basis do you have in reality? Come to the word. Don't be hoodwinked by this empty deception. Now, this idea of philosophy and empty deception, sometimes you can think of two different ideas, but in other words, you can think of one idea. A philosophy which is empty deception. Again, it's not to say that all philosophy is wrong. How can we say that? God's wisdom is what we are seeking after. The beginning of wisdom is fear God. Where is, where is Christ in our pursuit, our love of wisdom? You know, if anyone loves or, or if we have this desire to be taught to, to walk in wisdom, as Paul said back in Colossians 1 verse 9, then we ought to be lovers of wisdom. We ought to desire it. But when it's not based on Christ himself, it will lead to falsehood and a captivity which mm, is not going not gonna to turn out well for us and is not to honor uh, Christ. Well, we need to be careful of that. See to it that no one takes you captive uh, through that philosophy and into deception. Uh, and we'll see next time. How does that come? What are some of the different venues or avenues that this false teaching comes? And what's the standard? What is the proper way for us to seek after wisdom? You know, it's a very important thing how we live our lives. 
how we think, how we interpret reality, how we interpret things that are going on in, in our lives, how we help our children to think about things going on in our world. Well, where's Christ in that? When we're talking about situations going on in the United States right now, are we more concerned about what, what this political leader did or didn't do or that political leader or whatever? But what does God say about this? What is God's word on the subject of uh, transgenderism or the subject of abortion? There's millions of babies aborted. What, what, is this, what is God's perspective on fiscal policy in a government? What's the government for? What, how do we? How do they fund? What are, what's their main occupation? Um, what is the role of free men in a society? How are we to love one another? I mean, these are issues we can talk all day about political theory. But what does God's word say? We come back to that and recognize, boy, we've been sold a bill of goods. Any number of political parties would present a philosophy, an approach, you know, their platform, but it's empty. It is empty deception. They're promising one thing, and they're, they're giving a whole different agenda that, that is not after it. Where is Christ in this? The point is not to be political. The point is to be Christian, Christ-centered, and to be to exercise his mind. We have the mind of Christ. Do we use it? Do we apply it to the different issues we have in our lives, or the relationships we have, the ways that we spend our money, the ways that we spend our time? Where is Christ in that? Is Christ even mentioned? Do we have a consideration for that? See to it that no no one outside takes us captive. But guess what? We talk to ourselves so much. The self-talk, the soul talk. Well, what should we be doing? Psalm 103 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that's within me. Bless his holy name. We need to be confronting ourselves. Now, we pray that other people would confront us too when we are in error. But we've got to not even let ourselves lead us captive into false thinking and false feeling and 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 uh, speaking and and things that are just taking us away from Christ. Christ is all. He is. Our Father in heaven, we are so grateful for the truth of your word, the truth that is in Christ himself. Please help us to give first place to him in everything. In everything, we want Christ to be honored. We want his philosophy to be present in our philosophy, our approach to life, our observation, our interpretation, our application. Everything that we do, we want to be Christ-centered. We pray that we would be on guard, that we would be on guard against ourselves, against the voices that we listen to, even our own voice speaking to ourselves, but to other people. We pray that we would reflect your glory, your reality. There is no reality apart from you. You are the only real thing. You are the creator. You are the one who has made us Please help us, as Paul, as Solomon said, to remember uh, our Creator in the days of our youth. We pray that we would sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts. We pray that we would grow in respect to our salvation. We pray that we would be filled with the knowledge of your will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. We pray that we would find Jesus to be sufficient. We are so thankful. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.